So I think one of the myths of learning to do something new is that it's a voyage into the unknown and you can't plan it at all. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. So may I kindly ask you to introduce yourself? Mm -hmm. So what is your name? What is your profession? So my name's Rita McGrath, and I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. Uh, it's part of Columbia University in the city of New York. And you published a lot, like <laughs> many books and scientific mm -hmm. articles uh, mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, often uh, the, the, the books often is, are titled of um, of discovery mm -hmm. and planning. Mm -hmm. How is discovery and planning can be fit together? Is it, is it the same thing or is it different? So I think one of the myths of learning to do something new is that it's a voyage into the unknown and you can't plan it at all. Uh, what my research has led us to understand is that you can plan, but it's a different kind of planning. It's a planning to make discoveries. So you can almost think of it like the scientific method, but applied to management. So rather than plan, you know, as you were launching a, a plant that you understood how to do 20 steps further, uh, what you're going to plan to do is to learn the next issue that needs to be discovered. And so issue by issue, I call it checkpoints, checkpoint by checkpoint, you're going to learn your way to your ultimate solution. So it's planning, but it's in a very different framework than conventional planning. So what is the difference? So people, people think of, about plants, mm -hmm. especially in... Uh, in organization, mm -hmm. it's like for a year or five years sure. uh, to have the milestones and the waterfall methods mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all these kind of concepts that, that people learn at university and perhaps in schools mm -hmm. and uh, applied it uh, in business. Mm -hmm. So I guess you do not mean this kind of plan. No, the kind of planning I'm talking about is, let's say you, you want to get from point A to point B. And we have this mental model that that progress is a beautiful arc. Right? and it's all going to go really well. Well, when in your life has that ever happened that way? It doesn't. What happens is you set off from point A, and what my methodology recommends you do is you, you set yourself a point of stopping. I call it a checkpoint. And you ask the question, what's changed since I set off from my original destination? Is my future destination still what I thought it was? Are the assumptions underlying my uh, journey still valid? Is the outcome that I want to achieve still achievable? And based on that stopping and pausing, you then set off on your next part of the journey. And again, you stop and ask yourself at the next checkpoint, are things still progressing? So you make progress towards your plan, but you take this big monolithic idea and break it into learning checkpoints. So you can make progress against your goal without having to plan it like a, a big moonshot. And it's interesting, the moonshot was actually planned this way. People, people don't remember this now, but you know, John F. Kennedy said in 1969 before, you know, no, sorry, he said in 1960 before this decade is out, we're going to put a man on the moon. And then he made it more complicated and he said, and we're going to bring him back alive. <laughs> and so what the, what the engineers involved in the moon launch project said, well, before we can get a man to the moon and bring him back alive, we have to at least get a rocket into space, right? So that's, we'll start there. And it, basically what they did was they got a rocket into space, they got a rocket into low Earth orbit, then they started adding recovery technology, and so forth. And so they didn't plan and commit resources to the whole moonshot. They said, the moon is our goal, that's our destination, but there's a lot we have to learn before we can get there. 
Um, so is it easy for managers or other people to have this kind of uh, method or a shorter time of planning? Um, or is it difficult to, to change their behavior and perhaps mindset or even mental model? I found it's very difficult, and here's the reason why. If you think of most the leaders, most managers in large organizations, most of them have grown up and spent their careers in a period of time in which the organization had a competitive advantage that it was basically exploiting. And doing this discovery-driven process well is really dealing with a lot more ambiguity and a lot more unknowns that then these managers are often used to experiencing in their day-to-day -day life. So it's almost like you have to open up a whole new toolkit for them to, to understand. Now, once they get it, that can be a real breakthrough and people can say, okay, now I understand. Because the myth is that it's not a method. It's a method. It's just a really different method than the one we teach about in business schools and learn about in um, you know textbooks. Um, it's, it's a different way of planning. Do you want to make your sales more repeatable and reliable? Do you want to have less volatility and more growth in your revenue per month? At Strategy Sprints, we do only one thing, strategy and sprints. Strategy means having more revenue through a better offer. And sprints means having more energy in your team every week. Check out if your ROI is as high as it is for most service-based and online businesses and startups we work with which is over 100%. You can see it in just 15 minutes by going to strategysprints.com slash sales and completing our online exercise to know what your ROI would be with our accelerator program. We are ready to sprint. Are you? Now, the, the, the fascinating thing is that you uh, published your book 1995, uh, the, discovery-driven planning. Indeed. Thank you for remembering that. <laughs> and and, and uh, it, it was a completely different way mm -hmm. uh, to look at that, especially in the 90s, mm -hmm. in which waterfall method was just, you know, or, or the, the long-term plan. So how mm -hmm. did you come up with the idea that, that you have to shorten it with these checkpoints? Sure. Well, so discovery-driven planning had its genesis in a research project I did on corporate flops. So companies that had tried to go to, into a new market or test a new technology technology and it had just gone disastrously wrong. So I started keeping case studies in a file that I have at home. I call it my flops file. And you have to lose your parent company at least $50 million to get into my flops file. That's the rule. And when you looked across all of these, and these were things like TV Cable Week, uh, Disney's initial foray into Europe, um, Bic's attempt to sell perfume, you know, just, just back in the 90s, right, those were all the ones that were there. Um, and what we found was the following, uh, untested assumptions treated as though they were facts. Very few opportunities to change course if you learned something new. Leaders often personally committed to this kind of damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, we're going to make this happen idea. All the funding up, up front, all the funding up front, uh, and so on. And so what we found was that these ventures, which were highly uncertain, were being planned as though you had a lot more data than you actually had. And so we took a big step back, my co-author and I, and said, well, how would you do it differently? if you knew you didn't have the answer. 
And the, the insight that we came up with is, well, you design it as though you were designing an experimental research program. So if you wanted to find the cure for cancer, right? You can't just say, we're gonna spend $6 billion on this chemical because we don't know yet. So you're gonna go through a process of saying, First, you know, does anything show signs of, of addressing the disease? And then does it do so regularly, routinely? Then, And then you know, you'd have a series of questions you were going to ask. So the planning methodology originated from this notion that starting a new business is a real learning process rather than a process of proving that you were right. Improvisational theater sometimes people have just, you know, the northern star, like this is the show or this mm -hmm. is the kind of piece they wanted to do, but what happens exactly in the bare moment, they don't know. So they have to train to be aware of the situation yes. and yes. here now and to, to reflect on their feet. Is it a, a similar thing in business or is it different? I think, I think it's very similar. Um, you know, one of the most well-known entrepreneurs of recent years is actually a trained improv actor. He's the founder that started uh, Dollar Shave Club. And a lot of what he did in the early days of that company was that kind of responding to the environment and testing things and seeing what's there. And I think those skills are very transferable to business. What kind of skills do people need in this new world, so oh. to say, um, to, to deal um, with a fast-paced society, mm -hmm. with a higher complexity um, in which more testing um, is, is preferred? I think curiosity, empathy. If you're going to understand what customers need or want from you, you have to be able to establish a connection and you have to be able to go and give it an external focus. So I see a lot of companies that start with what's good for them. <laughs> and rather than really thinking about what, what's the customer going to benefit from, from what they do. So, you know, you see a lot of companies say things like, well, we make widgets and, and what are all the places we could possibly sell widgets and how could we protect our competitive advantage in widgets as opposed to saying, well, what's the problem widgets really solve? and work back. So, so so, that's a whole clutch of things having to do with empathy for the customer, empathy for your employees. And I also think you need to have courage. Um, it's very easy when things are repetitive and nothing changes much to rely on that as being the, um, the way that things are going to be in the future. I think once you open your mind to saying, you know, this may not be our core business, 10 years from now, these may not be the key things that give us an edge, uh, that our way of working may need to change. You have to have a certain amount of courage to say, okay, I'm willing to step away from perhaps what made me who I am and adopt and learn some new things. So I think courage is another one. And then I think a lot of it is discipline, you know, and that doesn't mean not being playful or not being experimental, but you have to have a certain amount of discipline, honesty, what's really going on, let's talk frankly about what we see in the environment. Those, those kinds of things I think are more important than they ever used to be. If we're going now to the future, mm -hmm. uh, it's always hard to see what the future might bring, but what would you say, what are the, the next steps, what, what kind of skills or abilities uh, do people and organizations need uh, in this uh, kind of society or in this organizational change? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we really need to think about is a lot of the activities that simply required task accomplishment. Um, you know, human beings are a very poor substitute for robots with those kinds of things. So at that point, I think a lot of those kinds of tasks are going to go to the robots. But where I think we will have a desperate need is for imagination, 
for conceiving of new possibilities that aren't there right now. Now, you know, artificial intelligence cannot think of something it's had no experience of. So that's something only humans with their imagination can do. I think empathy. Um, I think the ability to integrate. So the idea of taking disparate patterns and collecting them so that you can see what they really mean, uh, making meaning, you know, rather than just processing information. Those are going to be some of the skills that I think we need. And where I'm very concerned is that increasingly we are not making the investments in certainly in education, but also in socialization and in other other institutional factors that are going to let people thrive in those environments. We're really limiting human potential by the way that we're developing people right now. And I think that's a terrible shame. So how can we learn imagination, uh, empathy um, for uh, our new world? Um, what, what kind of training uh, is perhaps recommended or needed uh, in education, but also in, in organizations? Well, I think human beings have those things. They get squeezed out of us. So it's almost not like, what can we learn? It's how can we stop having these things unlearned, <laughs> you know? I mean, if you take a room full of kindergartners, they're incredibly curious, they're incredibly attuned to one another, by and large. Uh, they play together, they fight together, they have, you know, they're very interactive. And what we do is we sort of squeeze those qualities out as we teach people basically to be bad robots. So I think, um, I almost would flip that question on its head, which is how do we nurture and preserve those qualities? If uh, there are more situations that might be unexpected, um, mm -hmm. how can we be prepared for the unprepared? Right, well here I would draw on a biological analogy um, and I would talk about resilience. So part of my concern again with our educational system is we are breeding people that are only resilient in a narrow set of circumstances, you know, a stable job, a, a whatever it is. Um, whereas if you think about biological systems, so take the immune system as an example. The immune system gets stronger as it gets challenged. So my children um, were in daycare when I was working as a young professor, and they picked up every possible bug you could think of, from earaches to nose, inf I mean, rashes, pink eye, you, know, you name it. So each time uh, your immune system encounters something that it hasn't before, um, it sends off the white cells, right? And it defends against this thing, and hopefully it cures it, it gets better, but it retains the almost the muscle memory of having overcome that challenge. And so it's left behind, each of these events leaves behind a little bit of extra resilience. So when my kids went to big school, you know, elementary school, um, our son did not have one day out of school from the time he was in sixth grade to the time he was in twelfth grade, not one. And I would argue it's because he had a battle-tested proved immune system by the time he got there. So when it comes to building resilience, and this is some fascinating work that I, I would say the preeminent authority here is Carol Dweck, who talks about growth mindsets. Um, and her original work was on learned helplessness, which is how do we, how do we squeeze the willingness to try. And she started with animals and then and moved it to people. And what her research has found is you can actually structure conditions in which people have a setback but are, are willing to try again and, and have that urge to try again. So there's a lot of work on growth mindset that's becoming more uh, popular now and people are really trying to implement it in their organizations. How can you train this growth mindset? Yeah, you can. So it's um, so the idea is that rather than think about I am smart and I need to demonstrate how smart I am, it's to reframe it in terms of I shall be becoming smarter. I, I will make that effort to, I, I will try to get better. And it's related to a lot of the practices that we know if you want to develop expertise at anything. So take music, you know, musicians. 
how do musicians, great ones, learn to become great? They have master classes. So they train with their peers, and they have someone who's experienced, who's the master, and they go around and they critique each other's work. And then they get together the next week and they try to do even better. So there are ways of structuring this kind of learning. But if you're trained in a mindset that says two plus two equals four, I've got the right number, check mark there, I'm good, A, you're never gonna get better, and, and B, it's very discouraging if you don't get the right answer. So what a growth mindset does is it says, let's try to get better and better at getting a better answer, not let's get the right answer and we're done. It's a different way of thinking about it. We all know that working in sprints is better, but how do we know what we should work on? You're in luck because we have a 15 minute exercise that will give you complete clarity on where to take your project next. Go to strategysprints.com sales to complete our short exercise and meet one-on-one -on -one with an expert sprint coach to identify your number one bottleneck.